The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's with Dr. Sam Brinkman. Our program brings together individuals who struggle with Alzheimer's disease or other disorders and noted professionals who can provide answers and timely information related to these disorders. Now, here is your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our program. I am your host, Dr. Sam Brinkman. And I thank you for being with us. You know, as we've talked in um, previous episodes of the program, there are many different kinds of conditions that can cause memory impairments and other types of neurocognitive or neurobehavioral changes. And uh, as we've uh, talked previously as well, 20 or so percent of those are actually reversible conditions. We're going to be talking this evening about a number of conditions that come under the general heading of frontotemporal dementia or frontotemporal degeneration. And there are, as I said, a number of conditions such as fixed disease, primary progressive aphasia. But what each of these things have in common is that they are degenerative in nature. They each have their own unique pattern of impairment, and they each have um, their own diagnostic challenges and diagnostic difficulties. So to help to um, discuss this topic with us, we have Susan Dickinson. Susan is the uh, executive director of the um, AFTD, the Association for uh, Frontotemporal Degeneration, and she has been with that organization since 2008 as executive director. She has done a number of things to uh, cause this organization to grow to actually triple in size during her tenure, and um, the, her budget is now approaching $1.5 million. Among the, th- the things that she has done is helped to develop the first strategic plan. She has worked on governance and board recruitment, and these are fundamentally important to any organization like this. Uh, they are expanding their services to meet the needs of families that are dealing with one of the disorders in this um, group of disorders. Susan is, by uh, education and training, a certified genetic counselor with more than 25 years of experience facilitating communication among the lay, scientific, and medical communities. Uh, She holds this MS in genetic counseling from Arcadia and a bachelor's in biology and psychology from Swarthmore College. So, Susan, welcome to our program. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Brinkman. Well, I really admire how much of an impact you've had on the association in such a short period of time, and I hope that you can continue to develop the organization to make it an increasingly powerful player in uh, public education and providing services and education for families. Well, you know, I certainly can't take all that credit at all. Um, the thing is it, it takes a village, and I think this has been a critical period for our young organization. Um, we were founded in 2002, 
um, by a group of caregivers who had personal experience with um, these rare diseases and who really had a commitment that they could make a difference, that um, families facing these conditions deserved services and support, and they deserved the hope of research that just wasn't in existence back in 2002. Um, so what's been wonderful about the 12 years that this organization has been in existence is it's really been the story of a community coming together, um, professional researchers and clinicians, as well as the caregivers, and increasingly some of the patients themselves are um, coming to the table and um, working collaboratively to shed some light on these rare diseases. You know, one of the things that I have greatly appreciated. It, it just moves me so much when individuals who are personally dealing with the kinds of impairments that we're talking about here or their loved ones who, in addition to providing care, which is a, a very <laughs> a very demanding job, um, feel empowered enough, take the reins into their hands and speak out publicly, try to push the... Um, government entities try to push private industry like the pharmaceutical industry and push the public media to um, meet the, the, the various areas of intervention that are so necessary with these types of conditions. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, these are, you know, I think any kind of degenerative or, or dementia condition is, is difficult, but but the ones we're talking about tonight kind of have a, a special quality to them. Um, you know, our patients aren't losing their memory, which is what most people think of when they think of a dementia. They're losing um, their language, um, their ability to express emotions. They're losing their ability to control their behaviors. Um, their personalities are changing, and, and nobody quite understands what's happening. Um, and likewise, it, it happens at a younger age than most dementias. So, so most of our patients get diagnosed in their 40s and 50s. And so these diseases are hitting a family at a, at a younger age and having um, a very different impact on a, a family's life cycle than, than a dementia that hits in the 60s, 70s, or 80s. Well, you know, as you mentioned, people are surprised to find that these types of disorders can occur so early in life. And normally when we think of cognitive, generalized cognitive decline, progressive cognitive disorders, we consider the elderly. And, of course, many of the disorders afflict the elderly more commonly than the uh, young and middle-aged adults. But this particular class of disorders really is um, intensively selective for younger people. It is, and actually, if you if you look at the statistics, um, although because it is a rare disease, we certainly don't know everything that we wish we knew about the conditions. Um, they currently estimate that that this group of FTD disorders comprise about ten to twenty percent of all dementias. And if you look specifically at the group of people under the age of sixty, it's probably the most common cause of dementia. You know, uh, as a neuropsychologist, of course. I have um, attempted to understand the contributions of different brain regions to complex human processes. And when we look at the temporal lobes, of course, predominantly we're looking at uh, certain aspects of memory. Deep in the temporal lobe are structures that, that regulate and, and organize complex emotional response patterns. And then, of course, on the uh, cortical surfaces of the uh, temporal lobes, especially the left temporal lobe, 
we have the organization of language, sort of the, the word storage center and the access to that word storage, the understanding of grammar and syntax and things like that. And then when we look at the frontal lobes of the brain, there we're looking at a number of different types of things that come under the heading of executive disorders. Commonly in this group of disorders, we're looking at difficulty with inhibition of um, emotional and behavioral response patterns, where we're looking at difficulties with connecting the right emotional response pattern to the right setting or situation. And so that certainly does make things difficult, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, and when you throw in the fact that um, depending on which brain region the disease actually begins in, um, our patients begin with no one set of symptoms and they don't progress in an orderly or predictable fashion. So one patient might begin just merely by, by being more apathetic and losing energy and interest in things, while another one might begin with some, maybe some word-finding difficulties, and still another might, might experience some of those disinhibited or, or, or problems with judgment that you mentioned. So um, some of our patients who have specifically some, some symptoms in the, from the frontal lobe are um, real targets for some of the financial scams that, that those of us with our normal cognitive abilities would, you know, would understand um, what was going on and would, would not get sucked into the, the financial problems that some of our patients can experience. Yes, and these, um, this um, vulnerability to these types of things is, is just shocking. And the numbers involved, the financial numbers involved nationally is truly amazing. And in fact, I'm hoping to do a program on one community's response uh, uh, to that type of problem. I'm hoping to do that program within the next four weeks or so. Well, you have with you a couple of individuals who are courageous, caring, committed, and empowered, and they are going to talk about what they have been through. Is that correct? That is. Um, I have with me this evening Brant and Marie Henderson, who, as you say, are just a, a wonderful couple who we have known for, I'd say, almost three years now. Um, Brant and Marie met in 1977, and they've been married for 34 years. Oh, that's awesome. They live outside of Boston, and they have two grown children with one grandchild and a second one on the way. Um, Marie is chief nurse midwife at Massachusetts General Hospital and has been working with women and infants for 34 years. And Brant has two master's degrees and a Ph.D. in theology. His first career was in academia, but later he moved on to fundraising, where he accrued more than 20 years of experience and most recently, he served as a director of development at Massachusetts General Hospital. Now, in January of 2011, after 16 months of medical testing, Brant was diagnosed with behavioral variant FTD at the age of 58. He oh, retired six months later in July of 2011. Well, you know, these are two very educated and very intelligent people and it uh, and that simply demonstrates that you know these types of disorders are are not selective they don't discriminate and um, so Brant and Marie I welcome you to the program and I'm as I said before I'm very grateful for your willingness to participate well thank you for having us Brant you have a PhD in theology is that correct yes you know um, last week's program 
was actually on addressing the spiritual needs of persons with dementia and their families. So if you have the chance to listen to that, I would greatly appreciate your thoughts and your comments on it. I'd be happy to. Brent, when all of this started, what kinds of difficulties did you experience? Well, some of them were, uh, you know, very isolated and uh, curious. For example, um, I was messing up uh, calculating the tip at a restaurant, which was never a problem before. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having, uh, I said, you know, my, my search engine was breaking down. Sometimes I'd be searching for words and sometimes very common nouns that I was, you know, I was certainly aware of. I, and I could probably give one a textbook definition of it or point one out if it was an object and it was in my home, I could point it out, but I couldn't think of the word. But where it was more um, insidious was the slow decay of executive function. And in the job that I was in required um, a lot of you know multitasking. I had a portfolio of 100 persons who were making gifts uh, to the hospital or were potential philanthropists for the hospital. I also had to manage relationships with the physicians um, who were often the, uh, uh, the medical caregivers for these people who were donors or family members of uh, people who had been treated by a hospital. Uh, this would require setting up meetings, uh, initiating contacts, certainly being able to read social cues, uh, and to bring up certain subjects when not to do so. Uh, I was also, uh, a lot of times I would have to take complex medical, say a peer-reviewed journal article uh, written by one of our researchers and translated into something a little more comprehensible for a lay audience, uh, giving a report on, say, research that a person had funded or the kind of research we were asking someone to fund. And I realized I was getting further and further behind in my work. Uh, those proposals uh, or reports that I could whip off uh, pretty quickly were now taking three, four, five times long to finish. And a lot of it was my inability to keep focused on on the topic or if it required um, searching three or four different sources to make my point, I could get hung up trying to find those sources and then just sort of want, you know, my mentally wander off and uh, not come back to it in a timely fashion. Um, I wasn't making phone calls on a regular schedule that I was accustomed to, and, and I couldn't understand why I was falling behind. And I would think, well, Monday, you know, Monday starts a new week. It, it'll be better. Uh, you know, if I just had some vacation, I'd be refreshed and recharged. Yeah. Well, but Brand, uh, forgive me. Let me jump in here so that we can go to a commercial break, and when we come back, I will look forward to having a better understanding of this time of your life. So uh, thank you. We're going to go to break, and we will be back in just a couple of minutes. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? 
These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Every day we face struggles and issues concerning addiction, whether it's ourselves, family members, friends, or other loved ones. On Overcoming Addiction, Hope with Prevention, Intervention, and Treatment, Dr. Joe Terhar helps us all better understand the causes and approaches to addressing addiction with the knowledge that no single approach is 100% effective. From guest experts, families, and addicts, you'll hear about what is and is not working in overcoming addiction. Tune in Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Neuro Matters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to NeuroMatters. Thank you for staying with us. I'm Dr. Brinkman. This is NeuroMatters, the brink of Alzheimer's, and we are talking about frontotemporal degeneration today and the types of symptoms that develop and the types of uh, disorders that comprise this group. And we're very fortunate to have with us the executive director of the Association for FTD, Susan Dixon, and we are also very grateful to Brandt and Marie for joining us from Massachusetts, I believe, and uh, sharing their experiences as Brandt was describing before break the development of some difficulty. So, Brandt, are you there with me? I am. Brandt, when these difficulties started developing, what did you and Marie think might be going on? So, I... Um after a while, I knew that there was something wrong in my processing, um, and um, I sought help with that, and I initially thought, you know, am I getting some sort of adult onset of attention deficit disorder uh-huh. and ability to focus? And so I uh, saw a very good psychiatrist, and uh, he prescribed a stimulant. Um, I'd have to say it helped a little bit, but... Um, then my anxiety was building. I was having some mood swings. I was diagnosed uh, with bipolar disorder and put on lithium. 
And that must have been a very frustrating time for you to to uh, be experiencing those changes and not have an idea why. Uh, yes, it was extremely frustrating. And, and finally, I, I said to my psychiatrist, I said, if uh, this can't be bipolar disorder because I'm missing the fun part. There's no mania. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't mean to be uh, flip about bipolar disorder. I just knew that it wasn't, uh, it didn't apply to me. And then I said, I really want neuropsychological testing because something is amiss. I'm not processing correctly. And it's really... How, how did you know, Brant, to ask for that at that time? Um, well, it, at one time in my career, um, I was the director of development for the Department of Psychiatry at UMass Medical School. Oh. So I became aware of... And also, uh, another time in my career, uh, was working on behalf of the Psychiatry Department at Children's Hospital in Boston. Uh-huh. So, uh, in order to be effective in those in those positions, I had to familiarize myself with the field. And you know, I would meet adult patients, or sometimes the parents of uh, children with these different disorders, who would tell me about what they were struggling with. And especially with the adult patients, I said, you know, some of this is starting to resonate. Now, I never met anyone with behavioral variant FTD, to my knowledge, but. I knew enough that if something is not processing correctly... Um, you knew it was not bipolar disorder. And I knew it was not bipolar disorder, and I knew it wasn't depression, that I needed to to get tested and see what was going on. And, in fact, I did have the test at Massachusetts General Hospital. I took a full uh, full day for a barrage of testing, and apparently the results were so disparate that the um, uh, the head of the department called my treating psychiatrist and asked if there was any way I may have faked my PhD because it was a discrepancy <laughs> in intelligence. Oh my! So at that point, I knew I was really in trouble. Um, I sought out, with the help of my psychiatrist, found a neuropsychiatrist. Uh huh. Looked over the test results and said you need to have a functional MRI and a PET scan, and you need to see a behavioral neurologist. And this, so now things are accelerating. I'm getting closer and closer to a diagnosis. But since they did not have a baseline, uh, they waited a year before doing another round of tests so they could compare you know, the results a year apart from each other and then came to the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment most likely behavioral variant FTD. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much time passed from the development of those symptoms until you were finally given a diagnosis? That's, uh, that's a difficult question because the, I think most people who have this disease, especially the behavioral variant type, would agree that it creeps up on you slowly. Uh-huh. I, I can look back and say, geez, was that 2004? Maybe that was 2005. I was doing this or that. Um, I would say by 2008, 2009, I was starting to accelerate. My wife uh, uh, was noticing that I was hanging up uh, my dirty dress shirts back in the closet. I was leaving my suit uh, draped over the furniture any which way. Uh, you know, she can jump in and name moment for observations, but I knew that something was amiss, and I would say it was probably 
a good two to three years from recognizable symptoms to getting a definitive diagnosis. And even though that may sound like a lot of time, two to three years, conversations I've had with uh, people with FTD, and certainly Susan could weigh in on this as well, is that people go a lot longer than two to three years and several misdiagnoses before getting what they need. Yeah. Marie, are you available? Yes, I am here. Mm-hmm. Marie, that must have been, on the one hand, uh, given you uh, some initial closure to the question of why this was going on, but on the other hand, been very disappointing to hear of the diagnosis. Is that right? Well, just, you know, so unfamiliar. I don't, I don't think Brandt or I understood what we were in for. Um, you know, that we had spent a good two years just, you know, Brandt was acting differently. I wasn't sure what was going on. He was having difficulty at work, so we would get on the train. There's a few days we ride the commuter rail and together. He was uh, sitting on the train and just immediately starting to work without even saying good morning to me or, you know, talk about what we we're going to have for dinner or what we wanted to do socially. So, I, you know, I thought it was... That two years was very confusing of why was he pulling, you know, I perceived he was pulling back from the relationship. Um, really, he was just trying to keep his job. There was just so much effort into keeping his job uh, for him. He was coming home later and later. On Friday night, he wasn't coming home. He wanted to go back to work on Sunday afternoon. Um, and I thought, good grief, what is going on here? Um, so when we did get the diagnosis, I mean, it it. it it's devastating, but I think it's. Um, I think you don't know day one. I think I was in shock, um, and it takes it takes a while for it to sink in, and then also just to learn, you know, what does this mean for today, and that's a that's a daily struggle. Marie, how did you and Brant get connected up with the Frontotemporal Dementia Association? Uh, through our neurologists at Massachusetts General, the annual meeting um, does meet, um, or they were happening to meet in Boston the year that Brant was diagnosed. So we went, and and I can honestly say I did not comprehend a single thing that they said the first year because <laughs> I could not possibly see that this was the way our life was going to go. Um, uh-huh. But we we have, you know, we had a commitment to learn as much about the disease as we can. So I've gone to the annual meetings, and, you know, now it's just where I get a lot of, um, you know, my information as the caregiver and what I should be doing. You know, the people who live this and their family member is further along the law, uh, the disease than Brant is, have said, you know, you've always got to stay ahead. You should always be prepared for the next step. And, you know, some very concrete, great advice um, uh, and, you know, certainly the second and third and fourth meeting, I've gotten much more information and been able to utilize it and, you know, to be as prepared as I can be um, and to learn as much as I can from other families and feel like it's my turn now to start sharing what we've learned. You know, there's such strength in families coming together to encourage, to share their knowledge, to seek outside people to come in and and provide education and guidance as well and and I'm glad that you and Brandt have benefited from that and I know you are very grateful to Susan and her staff for the changes in this organization over the past couple of years. Absolutely. We would be 
we would be in really tough shape without the AFTD because I think hospitals or neurology departments are, you know, this is a, there's not large numbers of people. So in order to build teams, I think family members have to ask that of their hospitals to say, no, we want more services. And yet that's a difficult thing to put together. So I think, you know, going to the national or the annual meeting, it's in a different part of the country every year. We learn what's going on, what services the neurology department in Utah is providing in Salt Lake City to bring that back home to Boston to say, hey, look, they can do this, this, this. This would be really helpful. Um, And, you know, families need to ask for what they need. Well, I am very grateful, again, to you and Brant for being willing to step forward, and uh, I'm going to give the two of you a break from the microphone here as we go into a break. We, When we return, we will talk more with Susan Dixon as well as Brant and Marie Henderson about frontotemporal dementia and the AFTD, so please stay with us. We'll be right back. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuromatters. 
Thank you for staying with us. I'm Dr. Sam Brinkman, your host, and we are talking with Susan Dixon, the Executive Director of the Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration, and we also are very blessed to have with us Brant and Marie Henderson. Brant has been dealing with one of the variants of frontotemporal degeneration for some time, and he and Marie are very gracious to you, our listeners, in discussing what they have gone through and how they are managing it. So let's go back to Susan now. Brant and Marie contacted the AFTD, and so can you give our listeners an idea of what happens when someone contacts your organization? Sure. Um, so there are a number of ways they can find us. Um, many people, as Brant and Marie described, are referred by their clinician. Um, however, um, people can find us directly on the Internet at our website. Um, we also have a helpline, so there's a toll-free phone line or there's an info at email whereby people can ask questions directly of our staff and get one-on-one support and information. So there are many different ways that people can reach us. Um, When they do, um, I think the most important immediate thing we do is answer the questions that are first at hand for them. As you probably understand from Marie and Brant's um, description of their journey, journey to getting to a diagnosis, and as Brant um, intimated, there's most people go years um, for and experience a series of misdiagnoses before they get to a clinician who's familiar with FTD and um, able to order the correct tests and accurately recognize it. So by the time they get to us, um, there there is frustration. There's um, often a lot of damage done to relationships. You heard Marie describe the distancing that she felt from Brant, the confusion. Um, a lot of marriages do not survive um, that journey to a diagnosis. Um, I actually know a number of couples who, when they had broken up, or some of them had even divorced, and when they, they arrive at a point where they realize there is a medical organic cause for the problem, the, the well spouse comes back to the relationship to care for, their, for, their, um, for the ill spouse. So it's... Um, as we described, the, the source of strength and caring in this community is just, just tremendous. Um, so when people reach out to us, we first of all, um, we, we are there to answer their questions and help them learn about the disease. This is a rare diagnosis, so it's not something like Alzheimer's or cancer that people um, have some familiarity with. So there is a lot of just information for them to process. Um, at the same time, they have to be dealing with daily life so we, we help give them information and advice on the different people they might want to bring onto their care team. Um, the reality is that many clinicians are not um, aware of this disease, so not only is diagnosis difficult, but getting the right care um, can be a struggle as well. And so one of the important things we try to do is empower um, the person diagnosed and their family members to become a very active advocate and proactive part of the care team. And a lot of times, um, in a way, Marie and Brand are very lucky to be near a major medical center, near a, a major city. Um, people who live more remotely are, do not have those kind of resources close at hand. And so it, it requires a lot of active work to go out and find the right professionals to help um, be on the care team. And that would be somebody like a behavioral neurologist certainly your primary physician to manage whatever, um, whatever treatments uh, they might be willing to try to help manage some of the symptoms. Um, some of the patients need um, speech therapy 
um, in the hopes of, of retaining language as long as they possibly can. Um, <clears throat> and then as well as, um, as the professionals, we do encourage family members to, to find the right way to communicate to their close family and friends um, what this diagnosis is and what it means. Um, again, most people do not understand what the words frontotemporal degeneration means. So, um, and a lot of damage can have been done to other family members and, and close close friends. Just damage done to those relationships by this confusing behavior or changes in personality. So, um, Susan, after you have given uh, patient and family some understanding of the disorder that they have, then you also teach them how to communicate that information to others that that are important in their lives that they would be interacting with, right? We do try to provide some, some tools and some, some suggestions for how to prompt those difficult conversations, yes, yes. Yes, and they are difficult. And of course, as when you and I talked before, you had mentioned that isolation can be such a, a difficult um, obstacle to overcome in this diagnosis, can't it? I think it's, you know, I would welcome Marie, Marie's perspective on this, but, but from what I hear working with a wide variety of families, I think it's, it's the most difficult aspect of the whole thing. Marie, what do you say about that? Um. You know, there is a, a balance because people will often say to me, gosh, Brent looks so great. She's doing so well. And they don't see what I see. And, you know, these are some of our good friends. Um, you know, and you just have to decide um, just to let it go and kind of draw your circle of who you really need um, to understand that things are different. And, um, you know, Brent has a lot of apathy and that that's hard to live with. Um, but you can't just, you know, tell everybody that. Uh, I think I think that's something you learn as a family member learning or, li- you know, learning to live with this disease of just where is your support uh, circle and and make sure you, you get the support that you need to stay strong, to keep going every day. So your friends would know Brant as somebody who had, if I'm remembering right, two master's degrees and a Ph.D., and that is that certainly reflects a person who is motivated and has a lot of initiative. And with the apathy, decreased um, initiative with activities, decreased motivation to do things. Um, th- your friends must have, um, uh, when they when you have pointed that out to them, or when they have seen it with Brandt, that must be difficult for them to understand. Yeah, I can give one example. We um, we had this dinner at our house every year, a celebration of married love. We just have friends that have been married a long time, so every Valentine's Day we would have a potluck at our house, and Brant would, you know, welcome people in the door and pour the glass of wine, and he never asked, you know, he would always take care of me as he would take care of everybody who came in. He never offered me a glass of wine, um, and I thought, hmm, that's off. But he was also getting stuck. He would just start talking to one person, and instead of, you know, the doorbell would ring to say, oh, let me get your coat, what can I get you to drink? And then we'd come time for, you know, we'd have dinner together, and when we'd read some poems about friendship and love, um, that was everybody's assignment to bring to the dinner. Brant didn't have a poem for me, and like years before, he would definitely have one of the best poems. <laughs> um, and our friends were like, what's up? Uh, what's going Brent- on here? Uh, Brant, as you think back on um, 
uh, that uh, ritual that you have had, and what a what a wonderful thing to do, what a wonderful thing to celebrate is marital love that endures through many different trials and experiences. Brant, what was it like for you, and what would you be thinking when you would have people coming to the house, participating in something you'd done before, but you not um, able to keep up with everything? What was that like for you? It, it produced a lot of anxiety, um, disappointment, confusion. Um, not at, at times I could be detached enough to, in a sense, stand back and watch my behavior and say, now where's that coming from? Um, so by standing back, it would be a little bit less anxiety-provoking to you? Yes, yes, but also the, you know, some of the ability to observe myself and say, I don't recognize this kind of detachment. I don't recognize these kind of behaviors. Uh, why, why am I not doing what I would usually do? But the a combination of the apathy and the executive dysfunction is that you never get to what it is you meant to accomplish. You never quite close the circle. Um, the task never quite gets done. And as the apathy increases and the history of frustration of trying to get things done, you don't want to start anything to begin with anyway because you're just not, you know, I'm thinking, well, I just the thought of initiating certain kinds of activities in itself almost gets exhausting. And I haven't come to this point, but I certainly understand why so many people with the disease, uh, as it progresses, just sit in front of a television or sit about doing nothing or have a terrible time getting out of bed because the apathy is so intense, and yet um, it is so contrary to my understanding of myself, the thought that the will to do something is, at its very basic, just organic matter. It's just a brain function. That, that, that's hard for me to grasp, that the notion of the will as organic and breakable is something I haven't been able to wrap my arms around. And that's something that the general public and and even the professional public in many areas um, just really does not understand very well at all. That is quite a realization, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Very much so. Well, Brent, you have not um, folded up and sat down and given up. What has made the difference for you? You you have the apathy. You have the um, in in essence, a part of you has the desire to give up, but you haven't. What has kept you going? Well, first and foremost, Marie. I mean, she is a wonderful partner, and um, we are both faithful to this marriage, not just in terms of exclusivity, but commitment to this marriage. And Marie is uh, above and beyond in that uh, Understandably, some spouses, I think, would be tempted to cut and run because it is so frustrating and the apathy could drive you crazy and the emotional detachment that can come about uh, can be so difficult. But she has stuck with me on that. And I think it's also, um, I am, I'm aware that I'm disconnected. I'm aware that um, I'm not engaged as I was and that I have to take an extra step step 
in order to try to make that happen. Uh, that it's not going to come naturally. That I have to make a conscious decision to do what at one time seemed autonomic. And I think that's how I still manage to hang in there. But it's to, to give you an example, um, I recently made a pilgrimage. I walked the Camino de Santiago, starting in, in France and walking across 600 miles across Spain. I could only do that because I had a dear friend with me, a friend of 42 years, who has made it a, a serious effort to try to understand FTD. So uh, he would be the one that would in, certainly initiate our morning and get us going. And once started, I could keep going. But um, it's that jump start that initiates the day, that gets the activity going, that it Brent, that um, I would have to say to you that is one of the most eloquent descriptions of apathy, apathy and the struggle with apathy that I have ever heard. And I'm very grateful to you for sharing from your heart with our listeners on that. We are going to go to a break. And when we come back to our final segment, we will talk more with Susan Brandt and Marie. So thank you for staying with us. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Where did I put my keys? What was I supposed to pick up at the grocery store? Why did I forget that appointment? These and other experiences cause us to wonder whether we or our loved ones are experiencing normal memory changes with age or whether we are developing significant cognitive deficits. The Gray Matters system provides an efficient, economical, accurate approach to monitoring memory and executive functioning in older adults who are at increased risk of developing dementia. Gray Matters may be used in a primary medical care setting, long-term care facilities, retirement communities, and other settings. The system allows for determining whether an individual's memory abilities and executive functioning are in the expected range for age and education, and whether these abilities have changed significantly over time. As a result, older individuals can be given the assurance that they are maintaining good brain health. Gray Matters is a caring, proactive approach to managing the worries of cognitive decline in older persons. Gray Matters. Screen for memory disorders or forget it. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Neuromatters, the brink of Alzheimer's. To reach Dr. Brinkman or his guest expert today, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. 
You may also send questions or comments about the show via email to sdbrinkman at hotmail.com. Now, back to Neuro Matters. And we are back. Thank you for staying with us as we talk with Susan Henderson from from the AFTD. Uh, Henderson, I combined the group of you, Susan Dixon and Brandon Marie Henderson, about uh, frontal temporal disorders. And I uh, was talking uh, before the break, Brand, about what an eloquent description of apathy and the struggle with apathy you just gave. And Marie, you mentioned, and, and this is such an important fact, the awareness of deficit. You know, in neurological terms, there's a condition called anosognosia. It's a fancy word that basically means that you're not aware of deficits and you're not aware of how your deficits will impact on any situation. Um, and um, Marie, would you follow up on what you were telling me during the break? Um, just that um, in terms of Brandt, you know, he, it's an unusual, it, not everybody with behavioral variant FTD um, has a sense of awareness. So Brandt is, I mean, he's not the only one, but there's, a, there's less of a percentage that has an awareness that, um, you know, his behaviors are off. That can be a blessing and a curse, but most people, that, that's the first thing they lose. They're not aware that their behaviors are off. And I think towards the end of the disease, he too will lose that ability. That's what would certainly be expected. And as you described, it's a blessing and a curse, isn't it? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, well, it's just like intellectually, my husband knows he loves me, but yet there's a kind of a pause or there's just something very different. And, you know, I think that you can be committed to make the most of your day and to focus on what you can do. But, you know, at the end of the week, I'm, I'm looking for him just to hold me or to hug me. Um, so that's really, that's a challenge. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really difficult. I understand. And I uh, thank you for sharing uh, from such a precious place in your heart about that. Brent, you mentioned that, uh, as, as uh, you said to me during the break, intelligence is not lost with FTD, right? No, it's, it's not. But now, uh, even though word retrieval and some processing does get disrupted, uh, it's hard to say, you know, what's the cause and what's the effect. It, it, sometimes I feel like, I, as I mentioned earlier, I have a broken search engine. I'm searching for common words. It, uh, and even the names of people that I've known well, uh, I have to stop and, and think about it. And uh, I, I know a Rolodex is now old-fashioned for people, but I have <laughs> visions of the Rolodex. You know, I'm spinning it rapidly, trying to, you know, find a Rolodex card that I recognize. Um, the, yes, uh, I sometimes wonder, you know, am I have become intellectually lazy? Is that the apathy or I can't really read uh, and retain what I used to. I think that adds in there. But in terms of of innate intelligence, uh, I don't feel that that has been severely hampered. And there's a misconception among some medical providers that if you have FTD, then your intellect is going to degrade. And 
that's not necessarily so. Uh, well, in fact, I would like to put my, um, my professional experiences behind that statement as well. That is absolutely not so, and, uh, and almost by definition it's not so. So I appreciate you pointing that out. Brent, what about your memory functioning? How is that? Um, again, it's a question of what's the cause and what's the effect. I mean, there were times uh, when I was working that people would recall a meeting as though I were there and be talking about it, and I would have absolutely no recollection of that. But... I attribute a lot of that to just the anxiety about doing everything I could to maintain my job. Um, the anxiety levels were increasing, and I was on overload. One of the things about FTD is that you can expend a tremendous amount of energy trying to maintain the veneer of normality, the veneer of normality. And sometimes that veneer cracks. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that there, you know, the day will come that I can no longer maintain that veneer of normality, that, that it's too exhausting and the brain function will be there. So uh, when, I have, when I have forgotten things, it's, um, uh, I attribute it more often than not to times when I was really anxious. At the same time, there are other instances where situations juxtapose themselves, and I remember very you know, my daughter uh, and uh, both of our children, their, their friends were always in and out of our house. This was a place to be. And I can remember a couple of times encountering one of their friends in a different context and having absolutely no idea who they were. And they have to introduce themselves. And then I would, uh, I was totally, I don't think it was a case of, not, you know, no face recognition. It wasn't that part of the brain. But, but it was just connecting up common experiences with that face and that person right. and connecting a name. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, a very nice description. Susan, I want to come back to you. We have about two minutes to go. I want to come back to you and um, talk with you about what the goals are for the AFTD. Sure. Um, we've got a lot of work ahead of us, as, as perhaps your, your listeners can understand. Um, we fund a lot of research, and we, um, the pace of research is picking up, which is very gratifying. Um, but at present time, as you heard Marie and Brandt um, describe, diagnosis is a journey um, that, that is a very difficult one for people. It takes too long. And definitive still di diagnosis still does not happen until autopsy. Um, and there are currently no treatments and no cure. So we have a tremendous amount of work to do on the science and the medical side. Um, likewise, we have um, a lot of work to do in educating clinicians, as we've alluded to here. Um, we want clinicians to understand that not all dementia is Alzheimer's. It's not always memory disorder. And that even if you, you see a patient who is younger, um, you should still have some sort of dementia on, on the differential in the, in the back of your mind, just to, be, to, to consider. Um, I think we are making some good headway in providing um, family members and persons diagnosed with supports and information. Obviously, there's always more we can do. 
Um, we're in Washington advocating for services and research funding. Um, we have achieved getting compassionate allowance, so it's kind of a shortcut to Medicare for our patients if they get. And that was no small thing. That no, it was. was. A- and again, it's it's our family members in Washington sharing their story and um, putting themselves out there that convinces the policymakers that a disease like this belongs on that special list. Um, Susan, um, would you give the uh, contact information for the website or the URL for the website sure. again? It is www.theaftd, which is T-H-E-A-F-T-D dot org. Well, uh, I want to tell you again, Susan, how grateful I am for your willingness to take the time this evening to uh, have this conversation with us and for the work that you have done with the uh, AFTD. And and, um, I expect uh, that there will be continued growth in that organization and a continued impact. And Brant and Marie, uh, uh, from my heart, I'm very grateful to you for opening yourselves and opening your lives up for the good of so many uh, thousands and thousands of people in the future that will unfortunately experience this type of situation and will be looking for some kind of guidance and guidelines. So my thanks to all of you and my thanks to the listeners for being uh, a part of this discussion this evening. We are finished with tonight's program and I will talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Neuro Matters, the Brink of Alzheimer's. Please join Dr. Sam Brinkman again next Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again next week. We'll be right back.